0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. There must be some freaking chemical Chemical in your
1: brain. Makes us
2: different from animals. Makes us all the same. <laughs> 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 Love it! Take the mission. Hey! You lost? I'm a guide? What do you say? So the guidebook says that the route's through here. But I know a better way. All you have to remember is so that everything will be okay. Ah! Oh my god, Aaron! Aaron!
3: Oh! Ah! Yeah. You liked him. I don't think we figured in his day at all.
2: Ah!
0: Christian Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Danny Boyle, Simon Beaufoy, Christian Colson, and this evening's guest moderator, Annette Insdorf, Director of Undergraduate Film Studies at Columbia University.
1: Okay, Welcome. Well, I cannot imagine a film more different from Slumdog Millionaire, which was sprawling, multi-character, urban, than this intense tale of one person stuck. So I want to know what it was about this that led you to embark on this journey? I mean, was it that you read the novel, I mean, the, the story, the autobiographical story of Aaron Ralston, Between a Rock and a Hard Place? Is that what started it? What was it that grabbed you?
3: It was, um, I, I, I heard the story in 2003. I live in London, and I, I mean, it was a story that just went everywhere, really, I guess, like the Chilean miners, or there's certain stories that just snag. And I remember waiting for him to come out of the hospital, um, you know, to hear bit more about the story, and uh, there was a press conference, I remember that being in the news, and and then I read his book in 2006, and I was given it by Francois Ivanel, who runs Pathé, who helped us, was the key player in setting up Slumdog Millionaire, when Warner Brothers were going to put it on DVD and stuff like that, put it straight to video, but um, and it, he's a climber as well, and he gave me the book, and I, I read the book, and, uh, and I went to meet Aaron in uh, Holland, he was on a book tour promoting it, and I explained how I wanted to make it, which was like the version that we've got now, sort of. And he didn't want to make it like that. He wanted to make it as a documentary where he could be interviewed, a bit like Touching the Void. And, you know, and he... And I, I understand that now about him because he wanted to control it, which you can understand. That's how you try and keep control. Because he's a guy not from the movies. Know any, all he hears about terrible stories about what Hollywood does to real stories and chews them up and changes the ending and things like that. And This is a story you really can't change the ending of. So. Um, um, anyway, we, um, we, we parted and, and then Slumdog was a big hit and um, it came back, really. And we, and then Christian and I talked and um, we talked about trying to do it because we thought we should use the advantage that Slumdog's success had given us to do something peculiar, really, that something that we wouldn't normally ever get anybody interested in because it is a difficult sell for a studio. And God bless them, Fox Searchlight, they did back it, but it is tough and they're nervous even now. You know, um, <laughs> because it's obviously it's a very uh, challenging film in many ways. Um, and then we approach Simon. And, um, well, Christian can take over, yeah. There. Well, I mean, Danny sent me Aaron's book, which is... Uh, I, I don't know
2: how many of you have read it, but it's, uh, it's a wonderful piece of writing, quite apart from anything else. But, and a truly extraordinary story. But you don't read it and immediately think, movie. Because it's one guy... Stuck in one place for six days with very little food or water, no one to talk to. Um, And uh, there are obvious dramatic challenges to um, bringing that to the screen. So my question for Danny was, how are we going to do this? I mean, it's a great story, but how are we actually going to find a a language, a cinematic language, that's going to keep the story moving, keep it um, dynamic and interesting and kinetic? And he'd written a treatment, um, six-page treatment, uh, which began to outline a grammar, I guess, uh, for the telling of the story.
1: It already included the sort of zippy editing style, the inventive camera angles or not?
2: Yeah, that stuff was in there. But I mean, I guess the the single most important decision creatively at the beginning was that Aaron's book alternates chapters. uh, His experience in the canyon alternates with other reminiscences that he has uh, about friends and family. Uh, but also, crucially, about the rescue efforts that were being mounted on his behalf by his mother. So, uh, you know, somebody more, a little bit more literal-minded would have grasped onto those as the, as the means into the story, and, of course, what the treatment did was jettison those immediately, so that the, 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 the initial uh, concept was that the movie would be relentlessly subjective and that it would begin to achieve its effects by trapping us with Aaron... At the same time, in order to make that tolerable, uh, we were going to need to be very inventive in how the movie was shot, in the use of, uh, and, and, um, and narratively, it's very interesting, because it builds up through the accumulation of seemingly tiny incidents, you know, the, you haven't seen the film, so I won't tell you what the incidents are, but, uh, so it was a really interesting document, and that's what got me hooked, and then we went to speak to Simon.
1: And I think even if you have seen only the trailer, because I'm lucky, I saw the film at the Telluride Film Festival, and I can tell you that it is one of the most exhilarating motion pictures of the year, and that it moves with a pace that is just heart-stopping. It doesn't doesn't let up. So, you know, even though this is the story of a man trapped, a boulder of 800 pounds pinning his arm, and he's got to get out with nobody knowing that he's even there, they managed to turn this into... An extraordinarily exciting tale to watch. Um, now, Simon Beaufort, as I think most of you know, is not only the screenwriter of Slumdog Millionaire, for which he won the Academy Award, he also wrote The Full Monty and one of my little favorite films, Blow Dry. Um, you came in <laughs> after. I know, it's, it's a strange little movie. No Alan one's Rickman, ever seen Natasha that film except you.
3: <laughs> apparently.
1: Um, but I like these weird little movies from out of left field. You field. And The Full Monty, you know. That's not out of left field. You came in after they had started working. There was already a draft, but you, you were co-writers on this one. So what did you, how did you reshape? What was your role in this?
0: Well, I have to confess to being very skeptical about the project entirely. Um, of all the mountaineering stories there are, and there are many extraordinary feats and books about people scaling Everest, the North Face, of the Eiger... Uh, it just invites tales of of human endurance. Um, this was the one tale in the whole canon of mountaineering literature which I felt was impossible to dramatise because it's one guy on his own. Uh, and of course, there are certain people in life that if you say, this task is impossible, they head for it like a train, <laughs> which Danny is one of those people. Um, and it, Danny wrote a 40-page document and plonked it in front of me and said, that's how we do it. And I got incredibly fascinated by the potential of it, because what you had realised, and I hadn't, was that Aaron had a video camera with him when he was down there, and he did this rather extraordinary thing while he was trapped for five days, which is he switched his camera on once a day and talked. And he talked to his friends, he talked to himself, he talked to his family, and recounted sometimes quite factually about what had happened how much water he had left the things he tried to do to escape this guy was trained as an engineer so he tried all sorts of very canny, clever ways to get himself out of the predicament he was in none of them worked uh, until the end obviously and he basically had another person down there with him in the canyon because he was chatting away to this video camera and that is the stroke of genius, really, that makes the whole thing possible, is that it's not a man on his own, really. He's talking to everyone back home. And this, as a screenwriter, allows you to go back into his past, through the video camera, um, to everything he's thinking and wishing and hoping. Um, If he had a future, what it might be, things about the past that he wished he'd sorted out and done differently. And that, to me, was a very fascinating part of the film, that it wasn't actually just a great adventure story. It was a a story about someone who'd made some major mistakes and was at a very difficult period of his life, really. Um, And all that was... That's the stuff of great drama, really, is um, people in very difficult situations, not just physically, but emotionally.
1: When I saw the film in Telluride, I said it was a Canon camera, cannon in the canyon without which he would not have survived because it wasn't just a testament, it was a survival mechanism. And I gather from what James Franco said in Telluride that for an actor, one of the hardest things is when you are acting in a vacuum, you don't have other actors to react to. At least he had the video camera. So he was doing the equivalent of a Shakespearean soliloquy, but he had something to be reacting to. And I have two questions related to that. I mean, wh- first, whose idea was it to cast James Franco, who is extraordinary in this film? Um, how did that come about?
3: Well, we met we met him in we met him here in New York. It wasn't a very good meeting. I don't know whether you he, he always looks stoned, like I mean, not just stoned. No, he's but just exhausted because he's simultaneously
1: <laughs> studying at Columbia, NYU, and making three films.
3: But he, he's just asleep. You think? I mean, Christian and I met him at first, and we. There were only three of us in the room, and I thought, does he even know we're here? It was like... And then the casting woman at Fox said... It was a fantastic woman called Donna Isakson. She said, don't... He is... That's a technique that he uses. And I subsequently learned... It is, in fact, he's not stoned. He's, he uses it as a way of kind of sussing out who is in the room, and what is their agenda, and what's going on. And he's very, he's very clever. He's a very smart guy. So we met him So we met him again in, um, in Los Angeles, and... He read for us, actually. And uh, sometimes when they, when they read actors, you just know. It's like, you, it's a stepping stone forward. You can just feel it solid under your feet. It's just like, and we went, we knew it was him straight away. And I remember we took the tape straight away. It was a DVD right, right the way around to Searchlight's offices, which were around the corner. And we said, this is him here. And we just gave it to them. And, um, and they were pleased, thank God. You know or they said they were. So there you go. It's an inspired choice. It works really well. He's, he's very, he's very, um, the thing about him is that he's, he's obviously a fantastic actor. You, you see him in lots of straight stuff, you know, like the James Dean stuff and Spider-Man and City by the Sea and, but then you see Pineapple Express and you see this other side of him and that's what we needed because we needed variety and that led Simon to write this one sequence which is, displays that side of, where he plays multiple characters. There's a bit in the trailer there where he starts it off. He leaves this very complicated message where he imagines he's on a radio show or a talk show and he's taking calls from concerned viewers, <laughs> you know, worrying about him, what's happened to him, and stuff like that. Anyway, so... And that, that exploited that part of his acting, so... Uh, you you
1: know. just answered another question because I wanted to know what Simon brought to the screenplay because you're co-writers. That, that is such a brilliant scene and I'm glad to know <laughs> where it came from. Um... The character Aaron, the, the real man, and James Franco to some extent were able to survive this experience, which is grueling physically, not just because of a certain emotional resource, but also the camera, that video camera. And I want to know, what would it take? Each of you must have placed yourselves into the shoes of Aaron Ralston stuck for six days in that canyon. What would you need to survive? Would it be a camera? Would you have been able to do? Not even the part, which we're not going to talk about too much, how he gets out of there with using just a pocket knife, but the ability to actually endure that kind of solitude.
2: Listen, <laughs> Look, the film it's insists, insists it... that we all would. I think that's the, the thesis of the film. Um, whether we all would is a, is a, is a, is a different... Uh, question, really. I mean, I, I don't think I'd live very long down there. I mean, he had a very specific skill set uh, as well as a very specific mindset um, that enabled him to do what he did. But what, I guess what the movie asserts is that um, there's something that... Um, they, for him, it was almost an opportunity. Um, uh, it's something that we're all going to have to confront one day. Um, our demise, uh, and he was lucky enough to uh, be in a position where he had a second chance. He could reevaluate his relationships with with himself and the world, uh, and he had the wherewithal uh, to get back to us all. Um, and that's sort of the thesis of the movie. I wouldn't have got back. <laughs> it's
0: uh, all three of us have been down the canyon that he went down, and the boulder is still there, and it is an astonishingly lonely place. You did the hiking and the, the climbing,
1: place. all three of you.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it is Dark and cold, and like being on the moon. Uh, And it takes an astonishing sense of willpower not to just panic. And uh, I think he has a very particular way of dealing with problems, very practically minded, compartmentalizes things. And he gave himself tasks every day uh, a kind of list of jobs that he had to do. And that It was very clever, and it helped him through.
3: I sort of, I sort of, um, the story is known as a kind of superhero story, really. And I mean, and and there are many things said about him like that. But I sort of don't. I'm not party to that. I think he went in there as a superhero, and the skills that he showed in there are actually made him more like us, made him more like everyone. So my belief is that everyone would survive it. You might not because you might get unlucky, but everybody would do what he did in the end. Because his journey is actually from an incredibly independent, self-sufficient, quite selfish man with huge um, athletic skills. He was an ultra-marathon runner in the desert. He climbed 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado on his own. He had all this going for him, and then the rock stops him and strips that off him and says he has to look inside himself. And it's not a, it's not a survival story. It's actually a story of a, of a journey to where he realizes that there are people... That he, who love him and, and support him in, in visible and invisible ways who he has taken for granted and who he has not been, not cruel, but not careful enough with their affection. And so that's the journey back is towards a kind of sensitivity, really, in a way, or an awareness. And it's only when he has that awareness, he's able to do what he actually does at the end. So that was always my take on it.
1: Now, it's rare for a film to engage two cinematographers, two DPs, directors of photography... But this one has both Anthony dodd who shot Slumdog Millionaire, and Enrique Chediak, who did 28 Days Later with you and other films like uh, Edward Norton Down in the Valley. Yeah. Why two DPs and how did... you? Well, I mean, actually, I think I, I know the answer because it's a movie that has such inventive angles and shifts film stocks and, um, you know, there's a visual richness. But talk about how the two work together.
3: Well, the idea we had this, because it's just one guy mostly for the whole movie, we, 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 we kept thinking, how can we um, create variation? And one of the things was obviously James' skill as an actor, that he can play many characters in a way. He isn't just a tone, he doesn't just occupy a tone or he doesn't just play himself. And, but another one we thought is that we'll get two cinematographers, one from Northern Europe, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, and one from Ecuador, Enrique Charia, and they'll bound to be different. And and so we'll we'll let that live and we'll let the the feel of the film keep changing and varying. In fact, that didn't happen because what happened is that they... they, they, The way they worked with James, that became the vocabulary of the film, which is this movement that you get with him. So although he is still, the film is never inert. It's like moving all the time and uh, and not like in a handheld way, not like in a jerky handheld way. Um, So they were... um, they were—they they, they built up this extraordinary relationship with him. Whereas I thought one of the, he'd like one of them and not like the other one, and then I thought I can exploit that good cop, bad cop routine, you know, and get a bit of tension going and all that kind of stuff. And actually, they got on really well, all three of them. So, um.
2: and the other thing it enabled us to do, which was really important in a film like this, was uh, was to achieve compression uh, in the, the period of time that uh, uh, we shot in, uh, which was very useful. Uh, in terms of keeping energy, uh, not just in the movie, but in our process. I mean, we had James uh, stuck in that canyon, either on location or on the set that we built, uh, pretty much every day. Uh, we, we, would, you know, we couldn't have shot that for four months. He would have gone crazy. And I think everyone would have lost their focus and energy. And, and the compression that we were able... We, we shot effectively 10-day weeks, because we had two units shooting five-day weeks. Danny was shooting from six in the morning till midnight, seven days a week. And we got in and out of the story in eight weeks. So it part of that energy that, that you've been talking about is because of the, 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 the real compression that we were able to put into the process. And um, it also enabled us to, to shoot and wrap the film before the, the studio changed their minds about giving us the money, so...
1: And did each of the DPs have digital as well as... Um, traditional camera equipment
3: we gave them one of them we gave them a um they had a stills camera uh, the canon the d5 and the d7 and so they could shoot stills burst stills which is a technique we used in slum as well where you get these 12 frames a second and then you blend them uh, afterwards in the uh, you know cg blend them and you get this slightly stuttering effect then we used the uh, the main camera we used was a silicon imaging 2k camera which again we used in slum which is a highly flexible camera really useful for tiny spaces, which is what we were in. And, um, and they had a film camera as well, which we didn't use very much, and we didn't use it in the canyon at all. Um, and then they had, of course, Aaron's camera, which was the Canon Allura from 1999, you know, a little domestic camera. And some of the messages are shot on that. So they had four, basically four bits of kit, yeah.
1: It sounds to me all of a sudden like the editing of this film must have been quite an undertaking I mean I mean it's said, it's said about a lot of films that they're shaped in the editing room but was that even more the case more so let's say than slumdog Millionaire because there's so much rapid cutting into the stasis that creates the the mood of the film uh, how long did the editing take and was it for you as central as the well as the shooting experience
3: yeah I mean films are I mean, made in editing, it's true, what they say. And um, I'm sure it's not true of all films, but it's true of most films, I think. And we, um, we edited, again, we compressed the editing because we wanted to get the film out now because this kind of season is when this kind of film, which is a challenging film, gets a chance to not just disappear in a weekend. You know, it gets a kind of, you hope to build some momentum behind it. Um, so we, 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 we compressed the editing and, uh, and edited in about... Three months, really, in, in total, and did the music yeah. and everything. And, and got it. Out. And we had this amazing editor, John Harris, who'd done Snatch. Snatch and Stardust and Lear Cake. I'd made a film with him. Descent. Yeah. You did Descent with him. And he's a fantastic editor. And he had this particular problem because we'd written these triptychs which are at the beginning of the film, the middle of the film, and the end of the film. And at the beginning, they look just like a, a title sequence, like you see in screens. lots of movies. Split screen kind of things. Um, but then they become integral to it. To, to, to So that you can sense how repetitive his days are and how he begins to hallucinate, which is because he runs out of water after a couple of days, and when you run out of water it 's pretty serious quite quickly. the brain starts to go very very quickly and um, and then we bring them back at the end when he we reintroduce them at the end so it was it, he had to have software that allowed him to edit um, real time trip three screens or two screens, whatever we were using and uh, yeah, he, 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 did a, he did a wonderful job for us. Yeah. You,
2: and you, you were talking at the beginning about the, how different this film is to Slumdog. I think it's something Simon pointed out, that actually in the cut we've begun to perceive uh, <laughs> some strange similarities, um, particularly in the editing style and it's well, the time. They're also the both actually place.
0: about destiny, which had to be pointed out to me by someone else. But of course, the, there's a sense that he was heading down a particular path. Slumdog, of course, is all about the destiny of these two people who had destined to meet and fall in love and this film is about a very lonely man who's on a path of kind of self-destruction and he feels destined to meet this boulder that it's one day he's treading further and further towards the edge of danger which he was doing at that time in his life pushing things out a little bit more a little bit more going on his own not telling people where he was going challenging himself and there was this sense that destiny was going to come and get him and sure enough it did
1: you have that great line at the end of Slumdog Millionaire, it is written. Um, and there is a sense now that I think back, both films are about uh, overcoming apparently insurmountable obstacles. And both films depend on a very kinetic, energizing style. So yeah, one could tell that the same team is behind both. It's just that the stories on the surface uh, are a bit different. Um, I know that we're going to take some questions from you. I, I have a lot more questions, but I will stop for a moment and see if uh, people want to raise some of their own. We've got microphones. We have a microphone over here. Uh, I've got two people right in the middle over there, first row and third row.
0: Hi. Stand up. OK.
1: Um, I'm curious about
0: the timing of the opening title card. It was brilliant, so I wonder who came up with that and how did you achieve
3: uh, Aaron's fall? Uh, we, well, we... Um... It was one of those two. I can't, I can't remember which one. <laughs> no, we, we, we... Obviously, we had this title because we didn't... The title of his book is Between a Rock and a Hard Place, which, to be honest, we didn't like very much at all. And um, we wanted to make it more... feel more like a thriller. And, and there is a saying uh, that if you put It's the same theory that if you put "wedding" in the title of your film, you'll have a hit, and if you put a figure in the title of your film, you'll get intrigue. And if people are bored, at least they can work out what do all these figures mean. What does the 127 hours apply to? It was his entrapment, approximately. And so, obviously, it seemed like the right place. You either use it at the beginning or you save it until that decisive moment, really. To uh... and that was that. And then we did it. And and, and and the fall was very complicated. It stunts, it's a very short fall in many ways, um, and he lands, what I found extraordinary when we found out was, I couldn't work it out from the book, but he lands standing up, like in a handshake like that, with the rock, I mean that, it, it, I mean it's like, it's like he says, it, this is insane, it's like some ludicrous Beckett play that begins with this visual pun in a way, you know, and, he cut, and he's like in a handshake with a canyon, like a handshake with Utah, like this, it's just bizarre, and uh, and yeah, we we worked on that with with a mixture of stunts. James did some of the stuff himself, and got he got beat up quite a lot in the film, and uh, uh, which I, I think he quite enjoyed. But um, it does mean you can't go, you can't keep doing things because sometimes he would mark himself, and you you couldn't disguise it with makeup and stuff like that. But then you, I think he knew you had to to do, you know, given what Aaron had been through, it was no good us complaining about having to get up early in the morning or getting knocked about a bit, you know, considering you're doing the story of this guy who's literally disintegrating in front of your eyes for six days. But
2: but it's weird doing The Fall, and what's one of the strange things about making films is, I mean, that's on screen for what, eight seconds? I mean, less. And we must have shot for, I mean, days we shot that for. And then there were other, other times when he'd do a video message and we'd get, or two, and get a sort of six minutes of screen time in, you know, an afternoon, so... Uh, this is for Danny.
0: Um, uh, in all your films, acting, uh, cinematography, editing, story, they all play an important role, but also what plays an important role is music.
3: How do you come down to pick like what bands and who's going to score your films? You, well, usually it's not. We had we A.R. Rahman on this because we'd add him on Slumdog, which is a kind of obvious choice because he's an Indian composer, but he's a genius, absolute genius. And we asked him, we wanted him to do this. And he was delighted because from his perspective, he. He has a worry that he gets pigeonholed as an exotic composer just because he's Indian, you know, and he'll, he'll only get asked to do things like that. But he's a genius at it, absolutely amazing guy. Um, so he agreed to do it. And then we had some, but we wanted to put some songs in this one. Most of them you come across in the editing, but it's weird, you do bump into them sometimes. And we were driving actually in, in southern Utah looking for locations, which is endless, kind of huge long drives. And so Sutter at Lalab, who's the production designer and the costume designer, we were playing her iPod on the, um, uh, that's not a plug by the way, we were, it was, <laughs> we were playing her iPod on the, uh, on the car stereo, which was a Sony as I remember, but anyway, um, <laughs> the, uh, and this song came on, and it was this band Free Blood, and you just go, oh, I'd never heard it before, it's called Never Hear Surf Music Again, and I thought that's the beginning of the film, you just, it's weird, it's just like. And, you go and, it's, and you, then you take it back to the editing and you put it on the beginning of the film and it works. It's like, it's like destined almost to be there. It's very bizarre. And wh- I did a film, the first film I did was Shallow Grave, which ends with this great Andy Williams track, Happy Heart. Which my dad used to play when I was a kid. He was a big Andy Williams fan. A bit, he's a bit of a, he fancied himself as a bit of a crooner himself. And um, we were in a taxi in Glasgow when we were shooting the film. And we got into this taxi and the guy was playing Happy Heart. And you just thought, oh, that's the end of the film. Just like that. And it's weird the way it works. Sometimes you bump into them, you know. Uh, we
1: have one straight
3: back here. Okay. But they're also, they're also sorry, they're, 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 it was another way in which you can create variety in the film. You know what we were saying about the danger of it being very mono, because it's just one person who's very still. And we wanted to create this sense. We always had this idea that, it was in, that the film was an action movie where the hero can't move. That was our mantra every morning we went in. And so music is another way that you can do that. And contradictory music sometimes as well, as you'll see if you see the film, hopefully. So,
1: When you see the film. Right here.
2: Hi, um, I just want to ask you um, if you can tell us the budget and if, if you can tell us uh, whether uh, Slam Dom and um, after the Oscars, was it easier to get the green light quicker or you did a certain trick to get it quicker. How did you feel after that to get the budget and the money that it was and what it is? We we made Slumdog on a very, very tight budget. I can't disclose the budget of this one, but it was tight also. It was one of the decisions that we made together, really, after uh, the success of Slumdog, was to try and keep some of that spirit in how we work together uh, and not to go off and try and do something... Monumentally expensive, that we could fail at, that might mean they would never give us another budget ever again, uh, but which would necessarily involve us restricting the kinds of risks that we could take. So we took a smaller budget um, to make this movie. It was it was su- sufficient for our needs, uh, but no more than that, um, and that helped us get that green light, um, despite. Um, some of the obvious challenges that the guys were talking about in terms of, you know, trying to pitch this uh, project to a studio. But in, in the end, we had great backing from from Fox, and we got the money we needed.
3: They were, they were, they were. They were I mean, the idea they said to us, "What? Well, it's a movie. There's just going to be one guy in it." the whole way through, and then he's going to cut his arm off at the end. <laughs> they were like, this was their worst nightmare as an idea to sell a movie. But we only
2: had to pay one actor on the plus
3: side. Yeah, so we yeah. said, just, just one fee and all that. Um, and I think they, didn't, they never suggested changing the ending, thank God. Because that's the advantage of a real story, of course, is that you can't change the ending. So, uh, But, it, yeah, I mean, it's, um, we, you have to push quite hard. And we, as I said at the beginning, we did use, we did use Slumdog... We morally blackmailed them into making the film, basically. Because you make them a lot of money and you say, come on, come on, come on, and they're, they're rightly reticent, you know, or, or, or cautious. And you have to kind of push them forward. And um, that's what we try to do, Yeah.
1: And don't forget, everybody, that we talk about Slumdog now as this phenomenon, this international success, this Oscar winner, but there was a time that Slumdog Millionaire was finished and didn't have distribution, almost didn't get out there. These guys know a lot about what it takes, not simply to get a film made, but what it means to then finally get the film out there. So, you know, remember that there's this spectrum of experience that they got to go through.
0: Hi, how are you doing? Um... What was the rehearsal process with uh, with James? I was
3: uh, I'm very curious about it. Yeah, no, we, we didn't really rehearse. He couldn't because really, he did not really say very much apart from these messages, which are mostly verbatim what Aaron said. We just talked a bit really, and we would get Aaron in. Aaron would come in and show us some of the technical stuff, like how he rigged a rope and stuff like that. But basically, we were sort of we were sort of waiting to begin shooting because shooting was. I mean, I love rehearsal because I come from a theatre background, so I'm dead keen on rehearsing. But th- there wasn't really anything to rehearse, really. You had to go for the experience of doing it. And um, it was really interesting because the f- we'd, we'd set up the canyon. It, we filmed in the real canyon for about a week, but the most of the filming was done in a replication of the canyon in a warehouse in Salt Lake City. But we, re- we replicated it exactly so it wouldn't move there was no, like, floating walls or anything like that because we wanted it, we wanted James and the cinematographers to feel that um, reductive nature of you know, what was available to them, you know? And, uh, and James was never allowed to take his hand out of the wall and you know because you need, and that way you become more dexterous with your left hand, which is what Aaron did as well. So you, you try and replicate it as really as possible. But when we started, after we'd done the... Who was asking about the, the fall, the, the stone? Uh, yeah, the, um, after we'd done that, which was our first bit, we then did everything s- uh, sequentially. So we started with him trying to move the rock. He starts by trying to move the rock, which is obviously the first thing you try and do. And James did this, he sa- I said, I want you, I'd-, I'd made sure that the rock was fixed in place so it wouldn't move, there was a steel bar through it. And I said, I want you to try and move that rock because obviously th- we talked about it, that's what Aaron would do. And he said, do you want me to really move it? And I said, yeah, I really want you to move it because you won't be able to, he said, yeah, I will. And like, that's the right attitude to go in, because that's Aaron's attitude, which is, I'm going to move this now. Because you know, I'm a supreme athlete, and I can move it. And he, and he, there's this extraordinary take. I mean, in the film, you only see about you know, 90 seconds, mi- two minutes of it. But it's like it, took, it, it was this take that was like 22 minutes of James just trying to move this rock. And by the end, he was fucked. Absolutely yeah. fucked. And he picked up the water and drank t- a third of his supply of water, which is exactly what Aaron did. You know, because you just forget. Because the, and, of course, that's a critical mistake he makes. Massive mistake right at the beginning, you know. Um, and so from then on, we did, we, instead of rehearse, we did long, long takes. of, But we'd only do, like, one take or maybe two takes. Because he couldn't really do any more after he committed to whatever the activity was. And, again, that gives it its physical energy, I think, the film, you know.
1: Over here, we're going to take a question over here. Right? Oh, yeah.
0: Um, you'd mentioned that uh, the original Aaron had, the real Aaron had made videotapes of himself. I'm wondering if you had a chance to watch the footage and whether you applied any of the real raw content in the reenactments or or you discarded them. Just I was wondering if there's anything interesting on the tapes themselves. Yeah, he, amazingly, um, he's very reluctant to show anyone the original tapes for obvious reasons. They're incredibly intimate. And I think his, his mother, is that right? Uh, was the only person who'd seen them before us, and uh, he sat all of us down to watch them one day. Uh, and they're, they're extraordinarily composed for someone in who is basically dying and recording his own death on camera. And he revealed later that he he re-recorded if he broke down in tears or anything, he'd stop and rewind and go back over them. Um, but it it's it's an extraordinary thing to see someone someone's last will and testament on camera like that. And uh, you see his disintegration physically after, I think it's when he runs out of water, on the fourth day is it, he runs out of water. He start, his face suddenly crumbles and becomes very skeletal. Um, and it's, it's very moving watching them. Partly because of the restraint he brings to it. It's just an extraordinary restraint. Uh, given his situation. Um, Some of it is verbatim, we used in the film, and some of it uh, was so composed that we felt an audience might not understand the level of distress he was under, so we we worked around it. Um, Everything in the film, Aaron saw. He read every draft of the script and made comments on it, and he felt that everything we were doing, even if we weren't using the verbatim, words of the messages he felt it was true to the situation and his experience as it was um, which obviously is really really important given that it's his life story we have enough time for this question and another question
1: well on the heels of that about uh aaron so um when you spoke to Aaron about this and all, I mean, how interested or involved did he want to be or he was allowed to be? And then ultimately, how has he reacted as he's seen it? Have you talked to him about... I mean, you obviously talked to him about how, what feelings does it bring up and how does it affect him now to see it all replayed?
2: Well, we... Um, uh, obviously, we, we work very closely with him at the front end of the process to try and... Uh, because as Danny said originally, he wanted a documentary made. Um, and that conversation led nowhere, and then when the subject resurfaced three years later, we, I think all of us, the filmmakers and Aaron needed to be sure uh, that what we were gonna end up with was uh, something that everybody was happy with, and I guess the formulation that we came up with in terms of how to approach the film was that we would, it would always be, and it will always be Aaron's tale, but it would be our telling. I mean, the, the, the story already exists in the form of his book, and we needed to have a reason really to tell it again. I mean, it's not its not a, it's simply a, a, a reiteration, it's a, um, a reinterpretation of it, if you like. But we remain very true to its core details, its core factual details. Uh, but it's nonetheless written, it's acted, it's performed, it's directed, it's uh, edited. Um, so it occupies a really interesting space, I think, um, in terms of uh, as a piece of work. Uh, he, he, the first time we saw it with him, he was incredibly moved, I think, by it. We saw it with him, in, at, at, I believe, at a test screening in New Jersey, which we smuggled him into in disguise because um, we wanted him to watch it with an audience. and uh, He was incredibly moved, and I think he's very, very proud of the film and pleased with it, and, uh, as, as are we, I must, I must confess.
3: We have the last one right over here i um, very amazed um, by your array of filmmaking and styles uh, throughout the, your filmmaking career um, as far as the different genres and different types of stories that you've told. Uh, what, uh, is there any particular genre or, or story that you want to tackle next? I mean, I, I mean from horror to comedy to drama to real-life humanistic uh, feats like uh, 127 Hours. I mean, what is, uh, what's next on the horizon? Boy, yeah. a musical I'd love to do a musical I mean who wouldn't it's just like I think, I think that's the holy grail of any director really is if you could get someone to get up and sing and dance you know in, in real life and, 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 and with original music not like pop songs that already exist or not a Broadway show you know a pure musical from a, from a film form would be amazing really um, but very, it's very difficult of course to, to do so I'd, lo- I'd love to do one of them yeah for sure um, that would be wonderful, or, or animation, you know, because I think this is the era of animation, really. You know, uh, we, we had a we had a screening out at Pixar on uh, Friday, um, which was amazing—a bit of a dream come true for me to go to Pixar, you know, and screen the film there. Unfortunately, a couple of people fainted at the end of the screening, which slightly spoiled it, but <laughs> because it's quite an intense ending and. Um, but notwithstanding that, it was wonderful to be there and you know g- have a trip around the Pixar studios, you know, because But also all that, all that, all that, um, I, I had to pick some favourite movies for for iTunes as part of this promotion, and I was just thinking about. Uh, obviously, you recommend all the Pixar films, but because they're amazing. And but also Hoodwinked, and Waltz with Bashir, and um, uh, Triplets of Belleville. There's so much different animation about. It. It's the era of animation. It, oh, it feels like you know that's the stuff we'll... That'll last probably longer than any of the other stuff we do, I think.
1: Take one of your titles, Train Spotting the Musical, or an animated yeah. version. I maybe, who knows? Um, I've been told that we're gonna have to end this. I just wanna thank Christian Colson, Simon Beaufoy, and Danny Boyle for joining us and thank you all for being here. Thank you very much, you very much for coming.